Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Put your money where your mouth is. You know the saying, right? It was coined long ago, but it applies right now to the conversation around climate change. In this case, it's the banks, the Royal Bank of Canada in particular. It's well known RBC is one of the biggest financial supporters of fossil fuel projects in the world. So that's the money. Now here's some of what the bank has to say about what it's doing to fulfill what it calls its climate blueprint. With an executive-led climate working group with a commitment to reach net zero emissions in our lending by 2050, aligning with the international goals of the Paris Agreement. But some Canadians beg to differ. They've now formally accused the bank of false advertising because of the vast monies it has tied up in oil and gas. Holding the bank to account for its words and actions is one way, they believe, to hasten the demise of Canada's fossil fuel industry. Banks are also the focus of a Canadian senator who's piloting legislation she believes will force them and other federal agencies to live up to their promises. But today, let's start by getting out of the business district and into the wild. The Wolverine's sitting like five meters away in a, in a beam of sunlight, sitting down and just looking at us like, what the hell are you guys doing here? It was just so weird, right? We'd studied the species for three years, but we'd never seen one, so we didn't know, do we have to be afraid? Is this normal? Well, is it? We'll find out right now. Welcome to What on Earth. I'm Laura Lynch. This half hour, we want to tell you the story of a superhero called Wolverine, not the cartoon character, and sadly for me, not Hugh Jackman. This is the real wild animal, and our critter-loving producer, Molly Siegel, has been working on that. She joins us now. Hi, Molly. Hey, Laura. Um, So I wanted to ask you, since you spend a lot of time outside, um, have you ever met Hugh Jackman? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, sorry. I mean, have you ever seen a wild wolverine? Uh, No to the first question, and I'm afraid no to the second one as well. I don't think that that wolverines in any form actually exist around where I live. Have you seen either one of those creatures? Uh, No to Hugh Jackman, other than on the big screen. Uh, And I have, well, okay, so I've maybe kind of been close to a wolverine. I mean, you know, I spend a lot of time outdoors, and I really love wild animals. Um, and I know a little bit about identifying them. So I'm, if I see a marmot out in the wild, I'm, I'm not one of those people who calls the park warden to tell them I saw a black bear. Um, and trust me, that's a thing. Uh, and I can tell a coyote from a wolf, but a, a, a wolverine. Now that one is elusive. But in January, I found uh, tracks. I was out snowshoeing with some friends. And we saw these really distinctive tracks that turned out to be Wolverine tracks. Now, I met up with a scientist named Miriam Barreto, and 
she has been a lot closer than me. How should I describe a wolverine? It's about the size of a mid-sized dog. And while it has really long legs, they are kind of, it kind of looks like it's crouching down. So it looks kind of long with short, stocky legs. It's a dark animal, looks like a little bear without a tail. And they have a cute round face with a pretty impressive jaw and teeth. Cute round face could be in the eye of the beholder, I think. Impressive jaw and teeth, too. But she still does find them cute? Yeah, I mean, she really loves wolverines. After all, they are the star of her PhD research. Um, And back in February, I got out my snowshoes, and I met up with her, and and we went out into the woods. Um, And I will take you there, out into the field, later this half hour. Uh, First, just a little note about wolverines. They are usually found in places that are snowy for many months of the year. So think tundra, mountains, boreal forest. Um, Of course, where and when it snows or doesn't is changing as the world warms. Yeah, we know all about that. And we know that that change is sort of locked into our future. Yeah, yeah, it is. And that's why scientists are looking closely at these regions, like uh, the area near Golden in southeastern British Columbia. They call them climate refugia. What is a climate refugia? It's a place where you go for safety. I mean, that is the definition of refugia. That's Greg Yutzig. Biologists like him use the term refugia to describe areas where climate change is happening more slowly. These are safe havens that may shield plants and animals from some impacts of global warming. He says the idea of refugia goes back a long time, tens of thousands of years. During the last glaciation, it was the opposite situation. British Columbia was overridden by ice. But some areas, like Haida Gwaii and the southern tips of British Columbia, stayed warmer. And species took refuge there. Black bears and song sparrows. There were fish, including the three-spined stickleback, and also lodgepole pine trees. There were areas where species did persist, and once the glaciers withdrew, then they reoccupied British Columbia. And it's the same concept in terms of climate change refugia. This is why scientists even started looking for cold refugia in the first place, because research has shown warm ones existed. Yutzig looked for these areas that will stay both cool and wet as BC gets hotter and drier. What he found is a place that won't heat up as quickly, even as the world continues to warm from all of the fossil fuels we've burned. Okay, the climate refugia that I've uh, identified for southeastern British Columbia is is an area that basically fits in a triangle between Revelstoke, Golden, and Mount Robson. A tiny wedge tucked into the southern Rockies that will have what I think of as Goldilocks conditions. Most of the mountains in southeastern BC aren't tall enough, and most other places are too dry and too hot. But here, when storms come in from the Pacific coast, things are just right. But these mountains are high enough that higher elevations stay cool, even with climate change, and therefore 
they continue to get a significant amount of that precipitation as snow. Snow that many species need. And Yutzig says these ecosystems, inland temperate rainforest, extended hundreds of kilometers south into Idaho and Montana. And I think we're going to see it uh, retract up into uh, uh, southern British Columbia. And potentially all those species, if, if climate change plays out in the worst scenario, the only place they're going to be left in western Canada will be in these refugia. But these places are more like a lifeboat than a permanent safe harbor. These areas are last-ditch efforts. They're not going to resolve anything. The only thing that's going to resolve these issues is stopping emitting carbon and leaving fossil fuels in the ground. Approving new pipelines, approving new gas operations, uh, be they LNG or offshore drilling, is absolute folly. These last-ditch efforts are crucial for the survival of many wild animals. The iconic species that we look at in British Columbia, most of them are tied to these cool, wet environments, be they grizzly bears, mountain caribou, even deer and elk to some extent, um, and certainly wolverines, is that assuming that we will do something about reducing our carbon, this is a place these things will persist such that Eventually, if we can restore a climate over the coming centuries, they can then redisperse from here. So, Laura, you heard Greg Yutzig mention wolverines. Miriam Barreto, who I mentioned to you earlier, she's zooming in specifically on this one species in that climate refugia that Yutzig identified. And so what, what is she trying to find out? Good question. So if I could w- answer one question with my research, it would be, How many female wolverines are there that are reproductive, and where are they, and where are they not? Reproduction is one of the ways biologists can tell if a species is doing well. So there's some animals that are really good at having babies. So wolves are one of those animals. They have big litters. They have them often. They're very successful. Wolverines, however, uh, maybe only have one or two that survive in a year, and they usually don't have them every year. So having enough food and enough habitat really is so crucial to making that happen. And that's really what's at the heart of what Barreto is working on. And you got to go out in the field with her. I'm very jealous, (laughs) and I'm excited to hear what you found out. Thanks, Laura. West of Golden, BC, Miriam Barreto and I put on our snowshoes. We clamber over a giant snowbank on the side of a highway and into the woods. Yeah, about 600 meters. Yeah, it's probably still half an hour of walking because it also goes up 20 minutes, 200 meters. We make our way uphill. It's going to feel quite far. I'm hopeful we'll spot a wolverine. Yeah, we can be a little quiet the last couple hundred meters. I mean, there might be something in the forest, right? Keep your eyes out. We follow a creek bed as our guide, leading us to one of Barreto's research sites. Yeah, sometimes I wish I could I could hang out with them, but they don't really want that. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> that rejection hasn't deterred her. Usually, though, it goes like this. They just take one look at you and they're gone. So clearly they don't want to have too much to do with us. She uses hidden cameras to get a glimpse into their lives. And for three years, videos and photos were what she had. 
But then... The first time I saw a wolverine, the wolverine actually came to check us out. Suddenly I heard this like noise and I looked over and there's this wolverine coming to us, towards us. And she like scampers over, sits down in a piece of sunlight um, on the snow. It was in Banff National Park somewhere. The wolverine's sitting like five meters away in a, in a beam of sunlight, sitting down and just looking at us. Like, what the hell are you guys doing here? It was just so weird, right? We'd studied the species for three years, but we'd never seen one, so we didn't know, do we have to be afraid? Is this normal? Nope, not the norm. Usually all she has are those stealthily recorded videos and photos that show determined wolverines eating at the bait. And today we're checking in on some of those hidden cameras. Yeah, let's go around here. It's a big hemlock tree here. These trees probably never got locked here. And then we go up. That steep hill here. While some of Barreto's study area includes parks, it also includes places people have changed and that we use, whether from logging, building our highways, or even things like backcountry skiing. At what point are people on the landscape, whether this is recreation, um, whether it's um, industry, at what point is there too much of us that even if there's enough food, they're not going to stick around? So we're trying to answer the human side of the female question because we already know what kind of resources they need. What can female wolverines in this area tolerate while still being healthy enough to have their young, their kids, and to raise them? This climate refugia, predicted to stay cooler and with more snow than other areas. This seemed like a logical place to study them because if we can keep the population strong here, or if we can improve it, then we also know that their habitat's actually going to stick around. So that was important to me that I'm not studying them in a place where in 50 years their habitat disappears anyway. So I found that really motivating to study them here and to try to make sure that this particular population does well. At last, we reach the site. Yeah, if you come here, you can see it. Straight ahead. And there's still some some bone from last year hanging there. Bone from last year's bait, a beaver skull. It's hanging from a wire between two trees. Below it, a wooden plank called a run pole is affixed to a tree, and it lets the wolverines scamper up the tree out along the run pole, sort of stand up and grab the bait. I mean, this bait looks pretty gross. Nobody's going to eat it anymore. Fortunately, Barreto has come here prepared. She pulls a cow femur out of her backpack. Fresh bait. I'm a vegetarian, too. <laughs> you say this as you're putting up this giant femur. <laughs> These are the things I don't tell my neighbors. Joking aside, Barreto uses this fresh bait to lure more wolverines onto the run pool, which means more photos to help answer her questions. Is the female pregnant? Has she just had kids? And it lets her identify individual wolverines by the white markings on their chests. It actually took two years to come up with the idea of what would make the wolverine go up 
position itself exactly in the right place and get that chest pattern. A scientist named Audrey McGowan came up with this contraption. She got her start studying wild wolverines in Alaska in the late 1970s. More than 40 years of research later, there are still things that aren't clear. Well, I I think the story around wolverines is a lot more complicated than, than what we realize. Climate change is just part of the picture. So climate change and landscape change work in combination to shrink the, the world available to wolverines, essentially. Jason Fisher runs a lab in Victoria. He looks at how the ways people change the land, things like oil and gas exploration, forestry, or replacing forests with roads and developments, how all those things affect wildlife. Research in some of Canada's Rocky Mountain National Park's protected areas shows that even on those landscapes where there's less disruption, there's a trend of wolverines declining. And so that suggests that the signal of climate change is very real uh, and that life is being made more difficult for wolverines, uh, whether that's just the loss of snow or it's the loss of available food resources or probably a combination of both. Um, But they're still doing much better in those undeveloped landscapes than in neighboring adjacent developed landscapes where wolverines are taking a massive hit. So if we use that as some indication, climate change is a chronic persistent threat, but landscape change is this much stronger, very acute threat that we have to deal with right now if we're going to conserve wolverine populations. Whether in Canada, the United States, China, or Sweden, living out on the tundra, in the boreal forest, mountains, or temperate rainforests, wolverines mostly have something in common. More often than not, they live in places that have snow for many months of the year. Yeah, so wolverines and snow kind of go together. And in Across the world, we mostly find wolverines in places where there's spring, where it's just quite a good spring snowpack. And there's probably a lot of different reasons why they seem to have this strong relationship with snow. They generally build dens in or under snow. And snow also acts as a refrigerator where they can stash and protect their scavenged food. But the only way that that food stays safe is if the territory is defended. So that's the kind of theory that the females will defend a big enough territory so they can have enough resources to raise young and so they can stash food strategically in cold places. But for that, they have to spend a lot of energy to defend it because otherwise somebody else will just come and eat it. It takes a lot to get a female wolverine to leave her territory, her home. They're not going to recolonize areas if they don't have a reason to go. So what we really need is a very strong and big enough source population where there's enough wolverines that the young females have a reason to leave because there's too many here, so they have to go elsewhere. For that to materialize, this refugia would have to be protected in a way that can keep wolverines healthy. But even with populations intact, if those are spread out, they have to be able to get from point A to point B. Take, for example, in the United States, where Jason Fisher says there are clusters of wolverines facing challenges. 
um, which means that wolverines have to get from snowy mountain patch to snowy mountain patch crossing valley bottoms that are heavily developed that are covered in highways and those snowy patches are just going to get smaller and farther apart with climate change over the next century Fisher says that's why managing the landscape for climate change, making sure that there's still connectivity, that we build overpasses over highways, that we create green space corridors among mountains is going to be absolutely vital. Still, Audrey McGowan says not all wolverines approach barriers with the same gusto, whether a highway or even a river. Each wolverine has such a different personality. You get some really bold wolverines that are willing to handle challenges and others that that avoid challenges and so it all you have to get the right individual too right individual right area but what's at stake if we can't make it work for them jason fisher says wolverines like all wildlife have their place in an intricate system you know, it's like a game of Jenga, that if you pull one piece out from the bottom, you might be okay. If you pull another one out, that whole tower comes down. We see this time and again with the loss of species and systems. In the climate refugia, where Miriam Barreto is working, some of it falls into protected areas, but some of it doesn't. And thinking about it all sometimes wears on her. It's just so hard to stay optimistic. <laughs> Sometimes I wish I, I wasn't also studying human impact on things because it's, it's sometimes a lot to take. I think it's really easy to be pessimistic and sarcastic and think, well, we destroyed things, it's all too late. I don't believe that. I think, especially this region here, there's so much still here and there's a lot of people who really value the area for what it is, for the rainforests, for the glaciers. For, for the wildlife, for the excellent recreational opportunities, also for the forestry, right? There's so much that this region can give us. It's not that everything's gone. A lot of people are really keen on, on, on preserving what's still left. But for that, we need to know what the issues are. We need to know which things we need to, we need to stop doing and which things really aren't that big of a problem, right? So Laura, ultimately, the way to prevent the worst impacts of climate change, we hear this a lot, stop burning fossil fuels. We also know for wolverines that there's a lot of other sort of limits to development and other things that will keep many of them safer in some places. But we are facing a future where we're already locked into more warming. Audrey McGowan says that there's actually a lot we don't know about how wolverines will respond to that. What do you mean by that? Well, she told me this story that really, really stuck with me. It was from when she was studying captive wolverines in Oregon. Now, usually on a hot afternoon, she would see the captive wolverines just, you know, napping their way through the heat. But one day, McGowan noticed a male wolverine do something surprising. I measured the temperature that day. It was 86 degrees in the shade. And some of the places outside in the sun on logs were over 110. And this male decided he was going to take a bone and run around the compound over and over again, transferring this bone in 86-degree weather in the sun. And he would stop, go to the pond, drop his bone, jump in the pond, swim around a couple circles, come out, shake off, grab his bone, and run again. And he did it for hours. 
Okay. That kind of sounds like what I would do on a hot day. Pool, jump in, cool off, get out, dry off. <laughs> I know. I know. When I heard this, when I heard her say this, I thought, wow, that's kind of what like public health advice is, right? <laughs> Stay in the shade. Take a swim or dunk your head in the water when you're out on a hike. But, but this is, this, uh, at the same time, we're only talking here about one wolverine doing this. Yes, Absolutely. This is not like a pattern of observed behavior of wolverines in the wild. Um, But what McGowan is getting at here is that, okay, if we stabilize the climate, some things may still be lost, right? But what she's saying is that there is still some hope in what we don't know, that maybe there's some individual wolverines that will change their behavior, adapt like that wolverine did on a hot day. We should keep in mind not only temperature, but ways wolverines can avoid overheating, which includes being able to have access to water and to shade and to nighttime temperatures that drop low enough that they can travel at night if they have to, if they don't have water or shade available. That was really a new thing to me. Usually the wolverines in captivity would go and take naps in the middle of the day on hot days under logs or under rocks or whatever. Um, But this male decided he was interested in transporting a bone somewhere in his imagination, and he kept it up for hours. He's an inspiration. He's a little superhero. And Molly, you have succeeded in making me actually want to meet a wolverine more than Hugh Jackman. So I think mission accomplished. Thank you so much for this. Oh, thank you, Laura. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. You are listening to What on Earth here on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM, on demand and podcast at CBC Listen. I'm Laura Lynch. If you want to get in touch with us, our email address is earth at cbc.ca. You can also follow us on Twitter at CBC What on Earth or me at Laura Lynch CBC. And if you're tuning in for the first time and you're curious about what we've been up to in previous episodes, I recommend you check out our episode on hydrogen. Just a few days ago, Parliament's climate watchdog was critical of what he called the government's overly optimistic expectations of the role hydrogen can play in trying to cut emissions and breach 2030 emissions targets. In our episode, we take a close look at whether hydrogen can be a climate solution. Chloe C. has held an account with the Royal Bank of Canada for pretty much as long as she can remember. Her parents opened it for her when she was a child. But now she's 20, studying at university, and she's a climate activist. She's part of a group that's challenging her own bank. They're complaining to the Competition Bureau that RBC is engaging in misleading advertising when it comes to its commitment to climate action. 
Chloe C. joins me now from Toronto. Hello. Hi. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. Why do you want the Competition Bureau to investigate RBC's claims? Based on all the ads that I've seen from RBC putting out these beautiful images of all these trees and beautiful landscapes, and then comparing that to what I now have learned about RBC's actual funding of climate chaos and the fossil fuel industry, I just really think that there needs to be a stop to all of their misleading advertising. And I think there's a lot of folks around my age, especially, who are really um, rightly concerned about the climate crisis. And they want to be making decisions that are not contributing to the destruction of their future. So when they see misleading claims like RBCs about how they're so so called eco friendly, uh, they may be fooled by that and flock to banks like RBC to give them their 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 money and and uh, use their services. So I want the Competition Bureau to be looking into those misleading claims and to put an end to RBC tricking me and my fellow peers. You're not really tricked, though, are you? I mean, you, you, you've been involved in climate activism for a long time. Uh, I've only been involved for about a year and a half, actually. And before that, I had no idea the role that the banks played in the climate crisis. It's only since getting to know folks in the movement and having those conversations that I've actually found out about all of that RBC and the other big five banks really do. Okay, why don't you break it down for me a little bit more? What, what is RBC claiming that, that you are challenging? So RBC is claiming that they support the principles of the Paris Agreement, but that is not the case because the Paris Agreement goals are to keep global warming well below two degrees Celsius and to take every effort to keep global warming below 1.5 degrees of warming. So to invest in fossil fuel expansion and more fossil fuel projects, that's not really being in line with the Paris goals and the Paris commitments. And they're also saying that they are committed to net zero by 2050 and that they are working towards that, but they don't actually have a plan for that. Why isn't RBC's commitment to achieve net zero fossil fuel financing by 2050 enough for you? The commitment is not enough for me because it really needs to be backed by action. And just saying that they are committed to the Paris Climate Agreement and to net zero by 2050, to me, that's just words on a paper. That doesn't actually mean anything unless RBC shows that they have actual plan to be meeting those commitments and that they show that they are putting an end to fossil fuel investments and to new fossil fuel projects, which they have not done yet. What about the bank's promise to provide $500 billion in sustainable financing by 2025? That sounds good. What, what's wrong with that? The problem is that we can't be contributing to a, a problem and making it worse, but also say that we're making it better. RBC has invested over $262 billion into fossil fuel um, companies through investments, underwritings and loans uh, since the Paris Climate Agreement was signed in 2016. So. Uh, to me, the sustainable finance piece, it's just greenwashing. It's just them trying to draw attention away from all the billions of dollars that they're pumping into the fossil fuel industry. Now, I'm wondering why RBC, I mean, there are other Canadian banks that are also involved in fossil fuel financing. Yes, and all the big five banks do play a big role in fossil fuel financing. Uh, unfortunately, there is not one that doesn't. Uh, RBC, we see as a uh, major offender because they play a huge role in financing the coastal gas link pipeline. Uh, and that's a pipeline that's being built on Wet'suwet'en territory without the consent of Wet'suwet'en hereditary house chiefs. Additionally, RBC is one of the industry leaders. So we're hoping that by calling out an industry leader, we can then pressure the other banks to follow suit. Now, I should say RBC, uh, we asked for uh, a response to the complaint and it sent us a written statement that reads in part, 
that the bank strongly disagrees with the allegations in the complaint and it believes the complaint to be unfounded. I'm wondering what your response is to that. To me, that is RBC trying to save face. <laughs> that is for um, reasonably so. Um, I see why RBC wouldn't want this complaint associated with them because it does big reputational damage. We've done the research. We know that RBC is investing a lot of money, hundreds of billions of dollars into the fossil fuel industry. And we know that that is just not the climate action that they claim that they're taking. What is it that you want the Competition Bureau to do? I want the Competition Bureau to investigate the misleading claims that RBC has put in their advertising and making sure that RBC is not breaking any of those laws that protect consumers from misleading claims. Even if the Bureau ordered the bank to change its claims, what difference do you think it would make? I think a lot of students, um, people my age, my peers, do make a lot of decisions based on sustainability. I have lots of friends that will only buy certain products from certain companies that they perceive to be sustainable. So uh, I don't want companies to be taking advantage of that. You also want the Competition Bureau to, to penalize the RBC financially? Yes. So we've asked the Competition Bureau to impose a fine of $10 million. And we've asked for that money to be made available for Indigenous-led organizations to use for the purposes of climate mitigation and adaptation in so-called Canada. That's not a lot of money for a huge bank. Do you think that makes much of a difference? You're right. It's not. These banks have such vast sums of money. But I hope that this $10 million would have some really good material benefits for these Indigenous-led organizations. And I really hope that it's also a symbolic gesture of uh, showing that RBC was penalized, that they were found guilty of greenwashing, and that they have to make reparations for that. Now, as you said, you're part of a group called Banking on a Better Future. What's different about this complaint from the kind of activism that you're usually involved in? So I'm really used to doing a lot of grassroots on the groundwork, which is a lot of yelling at buildings, as we say, um, whether it's yelling at RBC headquarters or outside of branches. And those are very empowering. And it, it can be amazing to be with a big group of people all yelling at a big building. But this is more of an inside approach, I would say, kind of using the uh, legal networks that we have to be targeting RBC, not just standing outside their building with a megaphone, but rather through avenues that they can't really ignore. I thank you for making the time to talk to me. Thank you, Chloe. Thank you so much. This certainly isn't the first time the Competition Bureau has fielded a complaint about what's often called greenwashing. Just a few months ago, the Bureau fined Keurig, a company that makes coffee pods, for claiming the pods were easily recycled. It cost Keurig $3 million. Keurig also contributed $800,000 to an environmental group. Calvin Sanborn is a professor at the University of Victoria Law School and the director of the Environmental Law Center. He filed the complaint with the Competition Bureau about Keurig, along with the group EcoJustice. And Calvin Sanborn joins me now. Hello. Hi, Laura. Can you tell me, um, do you have a sense of just how prevalent these kinds of claims are today? They're, they're epidemic. Uh, we've had consumer protection agencies internationally did a survey of uh, greenwashing complaints and found that uh, about 40% of the claims made by companies about environmental virtues of their products are greenwashing, that they're, they're misleading. 
Now, when it comes to the case of the coffee pods, which almost sounds like a title of a mystery, <laughs> in the, case, the, <laughs> yes. the case of the coffee pods, it, it, it was relatively cut and dried, wasn't it? Well, it was pretty clear there that uh, that Keurig had made misleading uh, statements saying that uh, coffee pods were recyclable when, in fact, they were not recyclable in most places in Canada. And they also had ads showing that they were recyclable just by uh, peeling off the uh, the lid and dumping coffee one way and then dumping the pod into the blue boxes. And the kicker on the Keurig thing was that uh, it was not only uh, not easily recyclable, it, the ads and the marketing of the product were costing places like the city of Toronto tens of thousands of dollars to get the damn things out of their recycling system. Okay. The thing is, though, that this complaint about RBC's statements on its commitment to tackling climate change seems more complex and perhaps open to interpretation. I'm wondering what you think of the case that Chloe and the people who are making the complaint with her are making. It, it is complex, but it's, it's a very important case, I think, because I want to set this in the context that we're in the climate crisis because of misleading statements that were made about fossil fuels and climate 50 years ago. Because we know now that fossil fuel companies knew back in 1970 that the sale of gasoline and the use of gasoline was going to lead to catastrophic climate change. And yet the oil and gas companies uh, misled the public for decades, denying that climate change was even a phenomenon. The, the case that's being brought here is, is maybe a, an analogous kind of situation where we have to ensure that the statements being made are true so that 50 years from now we don't look back and, and see the, the kinds of uh, policy decisions being made on the basis of misleading information. What the group is asking for in terms of penalties is... $10 million. That's a drop in the bucket for a bank like RBC. How much of a deterrent is it or would it well, be for, for the Competition Bureau to find that they were in, engaged in misleading uh, advertising? They're limited by the legislation there, but you make a good point. Certainly with the Keurig thing, I think that the fine was $3 million plus $800,000 donation. So there, there was a hit to the, the reputation of the company. But uh, but we need bigger fines. We certainly do when we're talking about these multi-billions of dollars. The RBC is not the only company that uh, uh, Canadian banks, that five Canadian banks are, are uh, five of the 20 top uh, bank financial institutions for fossil fuel investments in the world. Since the Paris Agreement, just in the last six years, uh, Canadian banks have invested over $900 billion. I'm ta not talking millions, billions. So almost a trillion dollars in fossil fuel. And, and yet at the same time, the Canadian banks, many of them are claiming this net zero. We will achieve net zero. And, and it's because it's such a, a nebulous concept. Like who's going to prove that, that today that you're not going to achieve net zero by 2050? And that's why there are actions happening around the world challenging these kind of vague promises. So, What, what other actions are happening around the world? I'm curious to Very know. interesting ones. In, in New Zealand, there was a gas company that claimed that they were going to achieve net zero. It went to a tribunal, and the tribunal 
uh, fine them on the basis that that was misleading to say they were going to achieve net zero because the company, get this, was relying on future technology that was not proven. <laughs> so sometime in the future, we'll, we'll come up with some sort of gizmo to achieve net zero. But meanwhile, we're going to tell consumers we're, we're, we're committed to net zero by 2050. In the, in the Netherlands, a court in the Netherlands found that Shell Oil was falsely claiming that it was aligned with the Paris Agreements. We've got a, a number of cases in the United Kingdom, for instance, that an NGO has brought a false advertising complaint against HSBC Bank. They put in $110 billion in fossil fuel financing in the last six years. And the statement that they're challenging in the UK against the HSBC Bank is that the bank claims that our operations will be net zero by 2030. But upon examination, it turns out that they claim, oh, we're talking about our internal operations of our bank will be net zero. So they'll have a heat pump at the bank building and maybe solar panels on the roof, but not looking at, at their investments. All of this, these challenges and declarations, they seem to be nibbling around the edges of, of what is the heart of the issue for a lot of people who who want to get out of or want banks to get out of fossil fuels. Isn't the right way, if that's what you want, to, to ban banks from investing in fossil fuels? Well, that would certainly be one one way is is to ban them. And, but the the other way is to bring lawsuits and and get damages against companies for fossil fuel production. And so you've got New York City is currently suing ExxonMobil for deceptive marketing of uh, oil and gas, and and they're saying that that deceptive marketing, the greenwashing claims, have actually help to exacerbate climate change. And New York City is seeking financial damages against them for the greenwashing ads that have produced uh, climate change damage that is uh, impacting New York City today. So you're saying um, the best way to do, them is, do this is hit them in the pocketbook and hit them hard. Yeah, and hit them on a lot of different fronts. Not really hit them. I mean, this is not kind of, some sort of vindictive thing. It's just, how about just making them tell the truth, you know? And I'm not, I'm not judging the, the RBC case. We'll see what the, the results are there. But just generally, we, we have to take on greenwashing. Isn't it also the responsibility, though, of the consumer to, to be careful and, and to examine the products and services that they are looking to, to purchase? Oh, oh, sure. Yeah. But but the thing is that uh, companies hire the best psychologists, the best scientists, the best marketing experts to induce the consumer to invest in the company, even when the company is selling something that's really bad for the environment. So the consumer can be trusted as long as the information they're receiving is accurate information. And that's where government comes in. It's a responsibility of government to make sure that we don't have false advertising so that, so that the consumer can make a rational choice. 
Well, I guess we will see where this particular case goes uh, and beyond that, uh, see what happens around the world with these kinds of fights. Calvin Sanborn, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Laura. The Competition Bureau hasn't yet announced whether it will investigate the complaint against RBC, but earlier this year, it took the step of alerting consumers directly, telling them to be vigilant about greenwashing. The Bureau's Alexander Jokic says it's expecting to see more and more businesses trying to sell the public on their green credentials, and he says the Bureau is paying attention. That should serve as a warning to businesses that if they're looking to tout the environmental benefits of their products or services, that they ensure that they're not misleading or false. You know, Canadians are looking to hold these businesses to account to ensure that they're walking the talk. And the Bureau has an important role to play in that regard. An independent senator in Ottawa believes Parliament has an important role to play too. Rosa Galvez has introduced a private member's bill aimed at forcing all federally regulated financial institutions, that's banks and more, to be more transparent and specific about their plans to reach net zero emissions. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau appointed her to the Senate in 2016. Galvez is also an environmental engineer and an associate professor at Laval University. Hello. Hello, Laura. Thank you very much for having me. Now, you say when it comes to climate change, there's an elephant in the room and that this country's financial system, this is a quote, continues to fund activities that fuel climate risk. How much of a problem is that in your view? So the financial sector is in a conundrum right now. It's what we call it in French, a cul-de-sac. On one hand, they acknowledge that they are seeing the tsunami coming over them and that they have to do something about it, more than disclosure of this risk. But on the other hand, they are also financing this climate crisis because they are financing fossil fuel industry with billions per year. So we need to stop this confusion. So how would your bill address this problem? So our bill wants to align the uh, financial products and financial activities of federally regulated entities with our national and international climate commitments, but also on reporting the progress, uh, also on um, capital adequacy requirements. So like the um, institutions have enough capitals, once this risk is becoming tangible and and present, they must have these extra capitals. And we have to also put uh, clarity and transparency with respect to conflict of interest in the boards and also bring climate expertise to the table of decision. I want to go into these things in a bit more detail. So your legislation would involve federally regulated institutions, as you said, and most obviously those are banks and financial institutions, um, crown corporations. And if it's passed, these institutions would have to make annual reports on climate action plans, targets, progress, require them to have people with climate expertise on their corporate boards. Does that mean that they would have to name directors with climate expertise? Is that what you're talking about? Yes, absolutely. So we conducted several consultations with experts coming from different sectors, banks, pensions, insurers, and uh, we were told that uh, in the boards, the majority of the uh, people taking the decisions 
are in some situations of conflict of interest because they come from the fossil fuel industry. And, and I can understand because, you know, these banks and these entities, they lend money to this industry. And so there should be representative of, of this industry in the board, but not at the point of not declaring it and not at the point of favoring the industry and taking the financial entity away from our national and international commitments. And the other issue that was um, uh, mentioned by the expert is this absence of climate uh, expertise in these decisions. So on one hand, we have the conflict of interest, but then on the other hand, we have the absence of the science and on the technologies that are available. But Senator, there's something very fundamental here that I want to ask you about. You want to require private corporations to do these things, you're going to be telling them how they should do business. And they have, uh, as you know, a responsibility to the shareholder. So why do you feel comfortable forcing them to do things that may or may not be in the best interest of their shareholders? Good question. So first, the entities that will be covered by our bill are federally regulated financial institutions. So it's not the private. We are not talking about venture capitals. Um, so the experts have told us the members of the board are not saying it's not among the responsibilities to accommodate for climate risk. They are not saying that. On the contrary, they are all saying that they have to take care of this increasing, growing risk. The problem is, legally, it is not there. It's not described that it's a duty, a fiduciary duty, to take in consideration climate risk. And, and when you talk to the common person that have their money in their investment, and they say, you know, I put my money there, I invest there, so I expect that the person responsible in the board is going to check with all the risks that are there that will prevent my dollar to becoming two or three dollars with time. Okay, well, the, and, the, you, you, you use that phrase fiduciary duty, and I just want to make sure that, that uh, all listeners can understand that that is the responsibility of a director to look out for the best interest of the shareholders. But if you're going to go that far, why not just go further and force the institutions to divest from fossil fuels? As a senator, I cannot move money bills. I cannot impose charges, work with uh, fiscal tools. That can be seen by many as a um, disadvantage, but I see it as an advantage because it pushes us senators to be more creative. And, and so therefore, I can give a new duty to the board of directors. I can also change the mission and the purpose of uh, crown corporations, and I can um, make them write reports, targets, plans, and made it based in, in science, but I cannot tax them. That's the purview of the government in place. I'm wondering then what kind of response you've had from the prime minister. Well, you see, these are things, sustainable finance, because my bill falls in the category of sustainable finances, is in the platform of um, three of the four parties that are elements. So there is no surprise there because everybody's saying that this is the way to go. 
And hopefully with this alliance between the NDP and the, and the liberals, which, because they both had it in their platforms, um, will be able to, to go farther. But, you know, I'm not here to have a bill that have my name on it. What I, what I'm here for is that we change the system because right now the system poses climate risk, increases climate risk and poses risk to the stability of our financial system. And that's what I want to be solved. Senator, you, you've been involved in a number of climate-related initiatives since you became a senator. You're very active in the area. Where does your inspiration come from? Oh, well, don't make me cry. Um, first, I come from Peru. I, uh, I was raised by people living modestly, indigenous people in the mountains near the jungle. So my grandmother was a wise woman, and she lived until 103 years old, and she lived very sustainable. Then I come to Canada. I continue my studies in, uh, in environment, and I see that, that, that our legislation is not pollution prevention, it's pollution abatement. So we are legalizing pollution, and we are accepting pollution, and this is what brought us to this point where we are. We have polluted our atmosphere. And uh, when you have children and grandchildren, well, I just have to imagine my, my three little grandchildren, and I just say, you know, for them and uh, for our generation, their generation, uh, we have to do something. And we know we have, we have the technology, we have the knowledge, we have the money. So why, why is that we are not moving in that direction at the speed that we need? Senator, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Laura. We have tackled some fairly complex topics on finance and banking and climate change this week on, on the program. And I think that we will probably be doing a lot more of it in programs to come because it's a really important topic for so many of our listeners. But for now, that is it for us this week. The program was produced by me, Laura Lynch, producers Kristen Nelson and Molly Siegel. What on Earth includes our intern Callie McTavish, associate producer Rachel Sanders, and engineer Matthias Wilson. Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer. I am Laura Lynch. Now, you heard 20-year-old Chloe C. earlier in the show. She's been getting more and more involved in the fight against climate change. And she told me it's had a powerful effect on her. So this week, Chloe C. gets the last word. Before I started organizing, I definitely just felt pretty paralyzed by the climate catastrophes that we were facing. A lot of young folks struggle with climate anxiety, and that was definitely me for a time. But once I started organizing, I haven't really felt that climate anxiety ever since. There's just something so empowering about talking to people, marching with people that are all just focused on climate justice. And it really feels like I'm doing something, making an impact and not just sitting idly by while the world around me becomes more polluted. So it has been very important to me to get involved with activism, to feel like I'm part of a collective and that I'm not so alone in the world. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.